So we are in the middle of chapter 27. Hopefully we're going to finish this chapter today. And we're in the middle of discovering the joy in struggle. Now, of course, that sounds paradoxical, but there's a certain joy in struggle. And the joy in struggle, what a person who has a dark side can accomplish, a person who is a tzaddik cannot accomplish because he doesn't have a dark side. And every time we resist our dark side, every time we subdue and subjugate our dark side, we bring incredible pleasure to Hashem, similar to the pleasure of food that is naturally unpleasant, that is naturally bitter, but once it has become well prepared, it becomes not just a regular delicacy, it becomes a delicacy that restores and revives the soul. And that is what we accomplish through our service of Hashem, in this special way, in this way of struggle, dealing with the dark side. And now, moving on, we are in the middle of page six, and we were just finishing this thought. V'zehu she'amar ha'kasov, kol pa'al Hashem l'ma'anehu, v'gam rasha liyayim ra'a. This is indicated in the verse. The Lord has made everything for his sake, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, commentaries on this verse explain what does it mean that Hashem created everything for his sake, including the wicked man for the day of evil. This means that when he punishes those who defy him, he becomes glorified. Everybody sees that a man defies Hashem and he is punished and this brings Hashem great glory. That's the simple reading. But if we read this again on a deeper level, we understand that it's not just the wicked man, the man who is actually wicked, but a person who has a dark side. Anybody who has a dark side and has to struggle with it, this could be for the glory of Hashem. How can it be said that the Russia was created for God's sake? Perush sheyashov meirishai v'yaase harashalai yoyim ve'or lamaila. This means, however, that he should repent of his evil and turn his, e- and turn his evil into day and light above. So what he is doing for Hashem's sake is that he is taking the evil that he's having with him and he's subduing it. When he does this, this brings glory for Hashem. The Mishnah tells us in Avais, Whatever Hashem created in his world, he created it only for his glory. Even our darkness was created for Hashem's glory. And every time we resist the darkness, we transform it, not down here, because only a tzaddik could transform it down here, but we transform our darkness to light above. We make it yaim ve'or lamayla, day and light above. When the sitra achra is subdued and the glory of God is uplifted on high. Thus the meaning of the words, even the wicked for the day of evil, is that the purpose of the wicked is to transform the evil into day. I'm going to tell you an amazing story that I heard recently from Dwaralea Ashkenazi. She went to high school, the same school in Westminster, and her father is a rabbi in Huntington Beach. They had a man in their show, a doctor, a top urologist. He was very famous, and yet he was very humble. Real people's person. If you just met him on the street, you'd never know of his fame and his status. He was one of those people that was like an angel. Tragedy happened. One day, a madman walked into his office, posed as a client, as a patient, and shot him. 
and he was suddenly taken from this world. At his funeral, his son gets up and he looks at the mournful crowd and he says, you should know my father had terrible anger issues. Everybody's looking at the son, really. At the man's funeral, his own son will stand up and disgrace him? That's the first shock. But the second shock is that everybody knew him to be an angel and such a kind person. It can't be. This doesn't make sense. And then he said, and yet nobody knew. Not even my mother. And I wouldn't have known myself if he didn't tell me. He told me at one point that as a teenager and a young adult, he struggled with bouts of fury and he was provoked suddenly to anger. And when he got engaged to my mother, he said, this is not a way to live life. And I refuse to live my life this way. And he restrained himself to such a degree that nobody knew he had anger issues except for the son to whom he shared this, with whom he shared the secret. And we, we don't know. Maybe till his last moments, he struggled with anger within him. Maybe this man, this angel of a person, had this dark side flaring up with him till his last breath. But nobody knew about it because he refused to give voice to his dark side. And he instead touched base with his transcendent self. So when I heard this real life story of a person just like the rest of us, everybody has their dark side, everybody has their challenges, and yet he chose to hold himself strong and practice restraint. This is a person who truly personifies this idea of taking the darkness and while it's still in its strength, resisting and turning this into light and into day. And now moving forward, we're going to see that this practice of iskafia, iskafia means subduing or subjugation, applies not just when it comes to sinful and forbidden things, but furthermore, it can even be applied when it comes to permissible things. So I think we need to take a deep breath because up until now, some of you have shared with me that this sounds very challenging and a very tall order, and we're moving even further now. But we have to remember that this is all in baby steps. And it's about maintaining control so we show who's in charge in our life. There's the analogy of the olden day thief who's caught by the sheriff. Catches him red-handed about to break into somebody's house. So he grabs him, puts a handcuff on one of his hands, and puts the other handcuff on his own hand. Marches him through the city straight to the city jail. And as they're marching through the streets, the little kids on the street are running after them and taunting, Thief, thief, you're a robber, you're a robber! And the thief is so embarrassed and he's so humiliated and he's had enough. So he turns around to the kids and he said, I'm not the robber. Why are you calling me the robber? He's the robber. We both have handcuffs on our hands. I said, oh, no, no. We know who's the robber. He's not the robber. It's you. And he said, well, how do you know? And he said, because look who's the one who has the keys. So it depends who has the keys. In our situation, we're handcuffed too. We're handcuffed to our animal soul. And our animal soul has to be taken care of. It needs to be watered. It needs to be fed. It needs to be taken on a walk. That's all fine. That's important. But it can never be in the driver's seat. It can never have the keys. Who's the one who has the keys? Well, that's the one who shows control. And when we practice restraint, even when it comes to things we're allowed to do, 
This proves that we have control. And we're going to work through this bit by bit. As I said, it's, it's something that's a culture shock, especially in our Western society of just give voice to whatever you're thinking to do at any moment that you want and just be yourself and who cares what everybody else says and what everybody else cares. That's not important. What's important is just how you feel. Never stifle your inner voice for self-expression. And that's all true. But don't forget what your inner voice is. Your inner voice, your truest inner voice is your transcendent self. And when you give voice to your animal, that's not good. That's not healthy. It's not healthy for you, and it's also not healthy for your animal. I don't know how many of you have a pet, but I don't, nobody's dog really wants to be in charge. Even when it pretends like it wants to be in charge, the pet never feels comfortable when the master thinks that the pet is in charge. The pet feels the most comfortable when it knows the master is in charge. And so we have a pet, our animal soul, but it can never be in charge, and truthfully, it doesn't even want to be in charge. Okay, so I'm going to read from inside. This is kind of a long paragraph. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to say that this subjugation of the Sitra Akhra and the consequent divine pleasure are brought about not only by one's struggle against the Sitra Akhra when it attempts to lead one to sin, as in our case where the lack of a struggle against evil thoughts and the continued meditation on them would constitute a sin, rather one produces the same effect by struggling with one's nature and abstaining from permitted matters. For as explained in chapter 6, any permitted action done without the specific intention of leading one to serving God, as for example, eating in order to obtain strength for Torah study or performing mitzvot, derives its vitality from the Sitra Akhra. This term simply means the other side, like we discussed previously in class, the absence of holiness. Only an action so directed can draw its vitality from the realm of holiness. That means anytime you do an action that's mundane, Unless it's explicitly with the intention of serving Hashem, then that's, it derives its energy from the Sitra Akhra, the side of unholiness. Therefore, wherever one refrains from doing even a permissible act in which this intention is lacking, in order to do the Sitra Akhra, he gives rise to divine pleasure. The light Ella Afilu Bidvaram Hamutaram Lagamre. Furthermore, not only by fighting his evil thoughts does one subdue the Sitra Akhra, but even in matters that are fully permissible. What does it mean, fully permissible? Well, we have some things that are permissible, and then we have some things that are fully permissible. Permissible means eating ice cream, having steak, and doing any luxury things. That's permissible. But fully permissible? Dangerous. Depends on your situation, not necessarily fully permissible. What's fully permissible? Your power breakfast that your nutritionist told you to eat, your conversation that's important for business, your thoughts that you need to think in order to figure something out, all those are fully permissible. And yet, when we come to these areas, we can still practice restraint. Now, if you look through Torah, if you look through Talmudic literature, you'll find different ways of relating to the luxuries of this world. If you don't have a guide map, it could be a little confusing. Like, for example, the Nazarite, the Nazir. The Nazir is a man who grows his hair long and abstains from wine and any grape products. You know what the Talmud tells us? The Talmud calls him a sinner. And why is he called a sinner? He's a sinner because he sins against his soul for abstaining from wine. 
And the Talmud says, imagine, if he's called a sinner just because he abstains from wine, imagine somebody who fasts or otherwise depletes his energy, how much more of a sinner is he? Okay? The same page of Talmud, the very same page in Nidarim, says, what is a Nazir called? A Nazir is called holy. Why is he holy? Because he abstains from wine. And using the very same logic that was used for the reverse case, if he's called holy because he refrains from wine, imagine the person who abstains from much more. How holy is he? So are, are you confused yet? <laughs> Or how Perkei says, This is the way of Torah. You shall eat bread with salt. Drink water in small measure. You will sleep on the floor. You will live a life of pain. That's the way of Torah? Or how about this, this uh, quote from the Jerusalem Talmud? Rabbi Chizkiah. A person is going to have to get, give a din v'cheshbon, a reckoning for everything that his eye beheld and that he did not partake of. Okay, so where do we draw the line? How do we understand this? So we're going to work through the issues today. And please, as the issues develop, I hope that we're going to flesh it out together as a class. And at the end of class, we can uh, further the discussion. Every act of sacrificing one's impulse, even for just a short while, if he delays partaking of even the permissible and the essential with the intention of subduing in the left part of his heart achieves this end. So we're talking about the things that you need to have in order to live and maintain existence and yet... When you practice restraint, you sacrifice your impulse, you perform the service of his kafya. And it's, again, it's only somebody who has an evil impulse. A tzaddik cannot do this service because he no longer has an evil impulse. At one point he did, but now he cannot. It's only somebody who has a dark side. It's only somebody who has struggles who can accomplish this service. And now the Altar is going to, before he develops the idea further, he's going to give us examples from the areas of thought, speech, and action. So he starts with action. For example, when he wants to eat, but delays his meal for an hour or less. Now the meal that he's going to have is going to be a kosher meal. And not just it's going to be a kosher meal, it's going to be a very healthy meal, that power breakfast. And he needs this in order to survive. But there's a key word here. He desires to eat. It's more than just doing what you need to do in order to keep your body and soul together. Now there's a little bit of gratifying your animal. Okay, no problem. I'll take care of you, my little pet. But let's just practice restraint. Now, when it comes to eating, in the olden days, they were able to fast. They were able to fast for an hour or two. It didn't harm their health. The Rebbe writes in a letter that in today's day and age, he does not recommend practicing iskafia in the area of eating, meaning starving yourself, because it harms the body. We cannot practice iskafia at the expense of keeping Torah and mitzvahs. So if it comes at the expense of our health, then that's not good already. But the way people can practice iskafia in eating is waiting even 30 seconds or a minute. Or 
not finishing the very last spoon in their plate. I know this sounds so crazy because it's so not used to what we're thinking, but it builds moral character, it builds our resistance, it builds our spiritual stamina. The Isaac Batera Ba'isasha, and what does he do during that time that he's waiting to eat? During that time, he studies Torah. For if he occupies himself with other phys- physical matters, he does not subdue the Sitra Akhwar by postponing the meal, since he is in any case indulging his animal stall. So let's say he's in the middle of a really big business deal, and he says, you know what, I'll wait for lunch because I have to finish this. He's not, he's not subduing his animal soul. He's just exchanging one animal soul pursuit for another animal soul pursuit. Here we're talking about, he says, you know what, five minutes before I have my coffee, I'm going to read a Torah By doing that, he's subduing his animal soul. He's sacrificing his impulse. But if he studies Torah during that time, then even when the delay of his meal does not gain him any time for Torah study, for he would have studied Torah regardless, as will soon be stated, and despite the fact that he eventually does eat, yet he subdues the Zidra Akhara by the mere effort of postponing his meal, and thereby brings about the divine pleasure caused by every subjugation of the Sitra Akhara. So this is now the service of his kafia as practiced, not when it comes to simple thoughts or desires, but actually when it comes to the area of permitted things. Kedi'isa b'gemara, Sha'a revi'is ma'ichol ka'adam, Sha'a shishis ma'ichol ta'midichachamim. As the gemara states, the fourth hour of the day is when all men eat, but the sixth hour is the mealtime for scholars. So the Talmud says, gives us the different meal times of different groups of people. There was the Ludim, they were cannibals. They ate first hour in the morning, being very ravenous that they were. And then there was the thieves who were up all night stealing, so they ate the second hour. Now, when we say the first hour, the second hour, the third hour, we're not talking about by a clock. There's a different way, it's called Sha'is Zmaniais. These are proportional hours, seasonal hours. The way you decide these hours is by figuring that the night is made up of 12 hours and the day is made up by 12 hours. So you take the day hours and you divide them into 12. Sometimes they'll be as short as 45 minutes in the winter and in the summer they may be as long as 75 minutes. So the fourth hour would be about 10 or 11 o'clock. The sixth hour would be about 12 or one o'clock, okay? So the second hour was the time when the thieves were eating. The third hour was the time when the heirs were eating, the trust fund kids who didn't have much else to do. The fourth hour was the time when most people were eating. The fifth hour was the time when the hard workers were eating. And finally, the sixth hour was the time when the Torah scholars were eating. Why were they waiting till noon, or not noon, till midday to eat their meal? Because they would go hungry for two hours with this intention. Even though after the meal, they would study all day. So they weren't gaining any time for Torah study. They were studying the same amount of time, and they were eating the same exact meal, but they were waiting two hours to eat their meal with this purpose, the purpose of practicing restraint. Okay, so that was the first area, and that was the area of eating. Now we're going to look at the area, well, that's not area of just of eating. We looked at the area of deed, action. Now we're going to look at the area of speech. 
לכן אם בילם פיו מלדבר דברם שליבי מסעבם מעיד לדברם מענייני העולם. So too if one restrains his mouth from saying things which he greatly desires to say concerning mundane matters, even when there is nothing wrong with the words per se, yet he refrains from them precisely because he feels a desire to do so. So again, this sounds very wild because who in our world thinks this way? You're allowed to say these words, and not only are you allowed to say them, but these are perhaps essential words. You need to use these words in order to take care of your everyday affairs. But the key word over here is His heart greatly desires to speak them. Okay, well, practice restraint. You ever saw those signs all over the city at one point asking people to stop texting while they drive? And it says, it can wait. Not everything is a burning emergency. Even those words that you feel like you must, must, must say, it can wait. You want to say them so badly? Wait 30 seconds. Wait one minute. Every time you do that, you're practicing restraint. You're saying to your animal, it's okay, we'll take care of you. But you're not going to get gratification the second you desire. You'll wait. Okay, now it's going to get a little more wild. And likewise, regarding the thoughts of his mind, he suppresses an urge to think about some mundane matter. So you want to think about something. You say, one minute, I'll think about it in a minute. Now, as wild as this sounds, this is actually proven in science. In the 1960s, there was the psychologist Walter Mischel from Stanford. And he performed the, experience that are pre- the experiments that are pretty famous now, the marshmallow experiment. And what he did was he had his, his researchers deal with about four, four or five-year-old children, gave them a marshmallow, and said, you can have this marshmallow when I leave the room. But if you wait 15 minutes till I come back, you will get to have two marshmallows. These kids were on video. So some of the kids, as soon as the researcher left the room, pop, they stuck the marshmallow in their mouth. Some of the kids tried and tried and tried and they wiggled in their chair and they couldn't. And they, they popped the marshmallow in the mouth. Some of the kids, it was very difficult for them. They tried distracting themselves. They tried to do anything to take their mind off of the marshmallow and they waited. And when the researcher came back, they got two. Now this is very entertaining, but actually it goes further than that. They followed these kids for 40 years. And those kids that were able to delay gratification had higher SAT scores, were better resistant in alcohol and substance abuse, had better self-control, were better able to manage stress. Their parents reported that they had better social skills. So delaying gratification, scientifically speaking, builds moral stamina. It gives us an edge. It helps us practice restraint and character. Now, this idea of Kadesh Atzmacha B'Mutterlach, sanctify yourself in that which is holy, is really an idea of having to know yourself. Okay, because Parshish Kadosh in the Torah tells us, Kadeshim to you, you shall be holy. Ki Kadesh Ani Hashem Elokechem, because I, Hashem, your God, am holy. The Talmud tells us that this means Kadesh Atzmacha B'Mutterlach. Sanctify yourselves in that which is permissible to you. 
That means practice restraint in the things that are permitted. The Holy Shalah, Rabbi Shaya Halevi Horowitz, the author of the Shnei Luchas Hebris, the great moral ethicist, speaks about this concept of Kedashim Tiyu. And he says like this, If every person was the same, and all times were the same, the way the Torah would command us was, not just you can only eat kosher food, but you can only eat a certain amount of food. And the same thing with different areas in life. When it comes to physical pursuits, the Torah would say, you can speak this much and not any more. You can engage in this much marital relations and not more. But the Torah doesn't tell us that. Why? Because all people are different and seasonally we're different. Look, in the winter, people seek warmth. In the summer, people seek a cool breeze. We change all the time. And because we change all the time, we cannot have a fixed measure. So how does the Torah deal with it? The Torah tells us, Kadesh Sanctify yourselves in that which makes you, in that which is permitted to you. Make yourself holy in that which is permitted to you. Now, this changes from person to person. From one, one person, something is virtuous. And for another person, that very same thing is a sin. You have to know yourself where it is that you can practice restraint and where it is already that it's a sin. There's a story of the great Magad of Mezrich. This is the, the teacher of the, of the Baal Hatanya. And a rich man came to him and he asked him about his eating habits. He said, what do you eat every day? And he described the eating habits of a poor man, bread with salt. And the Magad looked at him and he said, oh, no, 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 that's not how you are to eat. You need to eat like a rich man. And the man left. After he's, he left, his students were very surprised. They knew that the Magad himself practiced great self-restraint when it came to eating, if you want to call it self-deprivation. And they asked him, how did you tell him to eat like a wealthy man? And he said, if he eats meat and wine, then he understands that the poor man at the very least needs bread and salt. But if he eats bread and salt, then he will think that the poor man could eat rocks. So when our self-restraint comes at the expense of other people, then we know we've gone too far. The Rambam, Maimonides, in his laws of Hilchas Ishas, the laws of personal relationships between husband and wife, speaks about if a man betroths a woman, and he says, Behold, you are betrothed to me on the condition that you are not bound by vows. If he marries her and then finds out that she has these vows, three vows that these are the ones, she can't eat meat, she can't drink wine, and she can't wear colored ornaments. Their marriage is annulled. Because commentaries explain that a woman who is bound by such kind of vows will possibly be an unhappy person and she will be difficult to live with. So when you're practicing this kind of restraint in a way that makes you unpleasant and edgy and depleted, then you know you've gone too far. Then you know that your eating habits are causing the poor man to eat rocks. Then you know that you're making your husband unhappy because you're just such a sour and unpleasant person. Definitely, we all have to practice restraint. We have to practice restraint when it comes to eating. We have to practice restraint when it comes to speaking. We have to practice restraint even when it comes to thinking, believe it or not. But this works measure by measure and building our muscle so that we become empowered. That because we restrain ourselves, we're more pleasant to live with. Because we restrain ourselves, we're better human beings. As soon as we 
move to the other direction and start becoming less pleasant, then we know that we have to reevaluate and say something's not working in this picture. Okay, so moving on. Afilu bimat mizair, the iskafia sitra achara lisata, even by the slightest subjugation of the sitra achara down here below. The Alhurab is speaking about a very minimal amount, even if it's about seconds or minutes. Just showing that little bit of restraint. Istalek yakara de kuchabrihu ukadushasai laela harbe. The glory of God and His holiness is greatly elevated on high. So our service here in small measure makes huge repercussions above. Later on in Tanya, the Altarebbe gives an analogy of the sun. The sun moves thousands of miles in the sky and down here a shadow moves just a few inches. And this works in the reverse. Something on here down here on earth moves just a few inches it makes movement of thousands of miles in the sky and this is just between two physical things the sun and the earth but when it comes to spirituality and physicality our little efforts down here create huge repercussions above don't think that that little bit that you restrained yourself means nothing when you restrain yourself with the purpose of subduing the sitra akhara and we're talking about just a minute just 30 seconds, moving just a little bit. Every single time you practice that restraint, you are causing huge repercussions above. Now, we learned earlier that every time you practice this kafia, you cause Hashem's glory to rise. Here, the altar now introduces a new term. He says, You cause Hashem's glory to rise. And His holiness. He's using a new term here. He's using the word Kedusha. The word Kedusha, which is translated as holiness, actually comes from the word Havdalah, which means separation. This level of Hashem's holiness is a level that is totally aloof from the worlds. Totally as if the worlds don't exist over there. When a person practices Kedusha down here, that means inherently they're not Kadosh. Inherently, they're not removed from the mundanities and the physical pleasures of this world. But yet, they practice Kedusha, they maintain apartness, they maintain aloofness, they hold themselves separate. Then, as the Zohar tells us, Ruach, icy Ruach, Ve'amshech Ruach. Spirit evokes spirit and pulls down spirit. What we do here causes the same type of repercussion above. So we practice holiness down here. Guess what? That level of the divine, the Kedusha of Hashem, when we practice holiness, is called to up above. And that is unleashed in all the worlds, causing this divine energy to be manifest, to shine in all the worlds because we've chosen to practice Kedusha down here. Commenting on the verse, Kedushim Tihiyu, again from Parshish Kedushim, the Midrash says like this, Kedushim Tihiyu, Ki Hashem You shall be holy, this is what the verse says, because I Hashem I'm holy. So the Midrash says, Kedoshim you, Yachol Kamaini? You shall be holy. You think you could be like me? Holy like me? Ki Kadesh Ani Hashem Elkechem, for I Hashem am holy. Kedushasi Lamaila Mikdushaschem. My holiness is above your holiness. So that's the simple reading. The simple reading of the Midrash is, 
You should be holy. You think you could be holy like me, Hashem? Oh, no, no, no. You have to remember. My holiness is above your holiness. But the Ma'or Einayim, a Hasidic master, gives us an incredible reading of this Midrash. He says like this. Kedashim tiyu. You shall be holy. Not as in a question, as in a statement. Kedashim tiyu. If you will be holy, Yachal Kamaini, you will be able to be like me. To do as I do, you will be able to create worlds with your holiness. And furthermore, Kedushasi Lemaila, my holiness above, the revelation of that level of Kedusha above, Mikedushaschem, is from your holiness. When you practice restraint down here, when you hold yourself apart down here, even though you don't really feel holy, you cause huge repercussions above that my holiness shall shine above. This is a really potent idea. And this is mirrored in the story of the Rebbe. In the 1950s, a group of university students came for a private audience with the Rebbe or a private group audience with the Rebbe. And this was a time when they were struggling with trying to reconcile science and Torah. And they had a lot of questions for the Rebbe. Towards the end of the audience, one of the students asked the Rebbe very bluntly, they, he said, they say you work miracles. They say you're a miracle worker. Is that true? And the Rebbe looked at him and the Rebbe said, every single Jewish person has a divine soul. A divine soul is part of Hashem himself. And just like Hashem, our divine soul, the Jewish soul, is not bound by the constraints of the natural order. The Torah is the medium to connect to Hashem. And when we connect to Hashem, we reach that space in ourself that is not bound by the natural order. Simply, in other words, when we connect to our holiness, it's not just a Rebbe who can be a miracle worker, each of us can be a miracle worker. Each of us has that power to access holiness when we show that we're above the mundanities of the world, even though inherently we're not, even though we struggle with the dark side, but we maintain restraint. Each, is, uh, each of us has that power for transcendence to reach beyond the natural order. Okay. And it says that the holiness of Hashem and his, the glory of Hashem and his holiness is greatly elevated on high. It's not just a little bit, it's greatly. Our little efforts here, the altar of stresses, afilu bima'at mizair, even by the slightest subjugation, our repercussions above are huge. Umikadusha zu nimshachas kadesha el yaina al adam lamata lasai siyua rava atam la avaidasa yesbarich. From this holiness, a sublime holiness issues forth upon man below to assist him with a great and powerful aid in this service of Hashem. The Talmud tells us, A person comes to purify himself, he is assisted from heaven. And this kind of gives us the mechanism how. When we hold ourselves apart down here, when we make ourselves holy, we unleash a huge divine force above. And as a result of unleashing that huge force, we pull down that holiness upon ourselves. And that very same holiness that we unleashed comes pouring down upon us to grant us great divine assistance. 
וזהו שאמרו רז"ל, אדם מקדש עצמאי מעט למטה, מקדשן עשי הרבה מלמעלה. This is what our sages meant when they said, if a man consecrates himself in a small measure here below, he is sanctified greatly from above. לבד מה שמקיים מצווה עשה של תרא והסקדיש דם וכולו, כשמקדש עצמאי במוטר לו. Hence, apart from the consolation previously offered the Benoni, that through turning away from evil, by combating evil thoughts and desires, he affords God a pleasure that Sadiqim cannot, his battle with the Sitra Akhara also contains a positive quality in the category of doing good that is likewise not present in the divine service of Sadiqim. Because until now we said that the advantage that the Tzadik has, that the Benoni has over the service of the Tzadik, is that he gets to fulfill the biblical injunction of you shall not stray after your eye, hearts and after your eyes. That is all in the category of turn away from evil, don't violate, don't sin. But what about when it comes to doing a mitzvah? Then surely you would think that tzaddik definitely has an advantage. The altar goes further. It's not just when it comes to violating a prohibition that a benoni has an advantage. And we're not just speaking about the benoni. We're speaking about anybody who still struggles with the dark side. Anybody who is still an aspiring benoni. It even comes when, in a positive sense, of fulfilling a mitzvah. This positive quality is the fulfillment of the mitzvah, sanctify yourselves, which applies only to Benonim, not to Tadikim. For the intention of the commandment is that even one's personal, permissible, and mundane manners should not be attended to out of desire of one's animal soul, but for the sake of Hashem. This directive cannot apply to Tadikim, who are encumbered, who are unencumbered by desires of the animal soul, as the Alter Rebbe continues. The meaning of sanctify yourselves is you shall make yourselves holy. You're not holy. And not just that, but most of us cannot even ha- eradicate the evil within us. A tzaddik is able to truly drive out the darkness within himself. A tzaddik is able to truly eradicate his evil. The rest of us cannot. So the injunction of hiskadishtim is not eradicate your evil. That wouldn't be fair. We can't. The injunction of his kadishtim, sanctify yourselves, is hold yourselves above it even though you still struggle with the dark side. I'm going to look at the chat for a minute because I see there's a question that came in. I can't. I don't know why it's not opening for me. Oh, here we go. How must one restrain himself or herself while doing an act of simcha, especially if others will benefit from your complete joy without restraint? So I'm, I'm going to ask you to unmute yourself and say your question verbally because I'm not sure I understand the question. Okay. I just was wondering um, if somebody, uh, you're talking about restraint and if you're like at a simcha or something, I mean, must one within the, within the boundaries or within what's appropriate, um, if you are so happy for somebody, should you... Are you advocating restrain your 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 joy? No, not at all. So I'm okay. very happy you asked that question so you gave me a chance to clarify. When you are happy, and especially you're happy for another person, this is not about the animal soul anymore. This is an expression of the divine soul. So no, no don't show restraint, show full joy. 
the only reason why you would show restraint if you're overwhelming somebody else or you're acting wild or you're acting in a way that's inappropriate, then you know that it's already an animal soul behavior. But when you're feeling happy and your joy is contagious, you're doing such a big mitzvah. This is great. This is coming from the divine soul. Show your joy. Joy is infectious. Joy gives empowerment. This is what we're working for. We're working for in these chapters, get joy, be joyful, be happy. Then there's a difference between joy and then raucous and crazy behavior. And they're not the same thing. You know, there's a story of a rabbi. When he was a little boy, about four years old, he had a pet fish. He loved his fish so much, he used to like play with the fish and talk to the fish through the glass. But one day it felt really bad for the fish. He felt really bad for the fish. So he decided he's going to take the fish out of the tank and put it down on the carpet so he can play with his toys because poor little fish is stuck in that little tank and cannot play with the toys. So he takes the fish out of the tank and puts it in the, down on the carpet and then goes running to his mommy. Mommy, mommy, mommy! I put my fish down on the floor and he's so happy. You should see how he's jumping and rolling around wildly. It's never been so happy in its life. And the mother goes running up the stairs trying to save the poor little fish, but it's too late. Now, when the fish was jumping around like that, was the fish happy? No, the fish was not happy. It was trying to gasp for oxygen. Sometimes people are on drugs. They're on alcohol and they're acting in what looks like happy behavior that's not happy behavior. That's very sad behavior. That's behavior that's come from a stifled soul who's seeking oxygen. So it's important to draw the line between wild behavior and joyful behavior. But truly joyful behavior is coming from the divine soul. And that's good. And that's powerful. It's powerful for us. It gives us energy and stamina to serve Hashem. And it's good for other people because our moods are contagious. And when we're happy, we give other people happiness as well. Okay, moving forward. Kilaimar. So we just said the meaning of sanctify yourselves is to make yourself holy. Kilaimar meaning That is to say, although in truth one is not holy and separated from the Sitra Akhra. For the Sitra Akhra of his animal soul is still as at birth in its full strength and might in the left part of his heart, in the seat, the seat of the animal soul, and evil inclination. The word Kedusha, holiness, means, like we said before, setting apart, separation from the unholy. The verse thus means one should sanctify himself even if he must make himself holy and separate from the, from the Sitra Akhra. For at his present level, his heart still desires those things that derive from the Sitra Akhra. Yet even while at this level, he subdues and masters the Sitra Akhra, his evil impulse, and makes himself holy, separate from the Sitra Akhra, then continues the verse, You will be holy. So naturally, he's not separated. This is an injunction not to somebody who's truly holy. This is an injunction to somebody who's not holy. Make yourselves holy. You know the line that they have out there, fake it till you make it? Fake it. You're not really holy? Pretend you're holy. You don't feel like you're above it? Act like you're above it. But you know what's going to happen? The verse says, V'his kadishim, you shall make yourself holy. V'yisem kadishim. And you will be holy. It can't be two injunctions, one after the holy one after the other. It's not two injunctions, one after the other. Make yourselves holy, be holy. No, no. It's make yourselves holy, and then there's a promise. You will be holy. 
the words be holy, which in their simple sense voice a command, can also be understood as conveying a promise. Kilaymar. Meaning that ultimately he will truly be holy and moved from, removed from the Sitra Akhra. So you practice holiness. If you practice holiness, ultimately you will be holy. Now you remember, we learned at the beginning of the chapter that the Alter Rebbe is comforting the Benoni and saying, Hey, listen. Some people are always going to have a dark side. And ule lakach nivra, perhaps you were created to struggle. So doesn't that seem different from what we're learning here, saying that, that ultimately you truly will be holy and removed from the sitra achra. So it's not a contradiction. Originally, we were talking about struggling with holiness and always having to struggle with our dark side. It means that most of us will never be able to totally eradicate our evil. Nevertheless, we will be able to move up in level. And by practicing holiness, we will indeed become more holy. The things that we struggled with earlier on in our mission are no longer a problem for us. Malena, I see that you put a question on the chat and I'm going to get to it, so I don't think I didn't see it. It's like, just think of us as adults. I don't know that every adult can say this, but most adults, I think, could say that maybe when they were a kid, they wanted tangy taffies and laffy taffies and all that garbage. And then as they matured, they said, you know what, even though I really want this candy, I'm not going to eat it because it has food coloring and sh- uh, sugar and all, are the, all, the ardor, all the other artificial garbage that my body doesn't need. But then it comes to a point where, like, who wants candy? Seriously, candy is garbage. It's gross. A lot of adults don't crave candy. By practicing the restraint when they were younger... They've matured spiritually. This is just not a problem for them anymore. And that's true in all of our spiritual journeys. Earlier on, okay, it's Michal's question. Earlier on in our journey, there were certain things that we struggled with. But then as we move through life, those things cease to be struggles for us. So while we can't eradicate the entirety of our darkness, we actually could eradicate sections of our darkness we actually will be able to move up in life about 20 years ago or so i asked my mother about her the fact that she had baruch hashem so many children which seemed like very very crazy in the world that most people are not having more than two children or so and she looked at me and she said look going through life everybody carries a heavy sack over their shoulder We don't get a choice whether or not we're going to have to struggle in life. Everybody has to struggle. But I chose to carry diamonds. So whether or not to struggle, that's not a choice. We're always going to have to struggle. For most of us, that's just part of the human condition. But what is a choice is at what level we struggle. If a person struggles with debased, corrupt things and they never practice restraint, they're always going to be wallowing in that filth. But if we slowly but surely, literally 1% at a time, practice restraint, the things that used to be struggles for us are not going to be struggles for us anymore. We will get divine assistance. I'm going to look at the chat for a minute to see the questions that came in. If you are, happy, if you are about to give tzedakah and are happy to fulfill the mitzvah, but also selfishly excited to act virtuously, should you practice any restraint? Wait a few minutes before giving. No. Absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. First of all, our sages tell us, 
You should always do a mitzvah, even without the right intentions, because ultimately you will do it with the right intentions. There's a reason why. Why don't we say, make a bracha before giving tzedakah? Tzedakah is a mitzvah. Why don't we say a bracha before we give tzedakah? Because we don't want the poor man to wait even one second. Even if the rich man doesn't give in earnest, but the poor man eats in earnest. Don't keep him waiting. So just because you want to be spiritual or virtuous, it can come at the expense of somebody else. So if we're going to feel even an animal pleasure in giving tzedakah, great. Let your animal have joy in giving tzedakah. That's a good thing. There's, you know, there's worse. There's, there's gossip. Let him have joy in giving tzedakah. It's a very good thing. You know the story, the parable of the prince who was sent into exile by his father and he had to live amongst peasants and coarse people. And one day he gets the news that his father, the king, is coming to visit him. My father, the king, is coming to visit me. I'm so happy. He goes to the bar. He wants to celebrate with the peasants. But the peasants, if he tells the peasants, my father, the king, is coming to, to visit me, they're not going to celebrate. They don't care about the king. What's royalty? They're peasants. They have no concept of something higher than themselves. So what does he do? He goes to the bar and he orders a drink for everybody. And they're all making merry and they're all dancing. And while they're dancing over the drinks, he's dancing because his father, the king, is coming to visit him. So while your animal soul is dancing because... The animal soul feels noble and virtuous. Good, let him dance. But your divine soul is dancing because you gave tzedakah. And that's what matters. Okay, moving forward. Ultimately, he will be truly holy. Through his being greatly sanctified from above, as quoted earlier from the Gemara. And through his being aided from above to expel the Sitarach from his heart little by little, so that even in his heart he will no longer have any desire for anything originating in the realm of the Sitra So we get special spiritual aid, even though we are not inherently capable of achieving this level. When we practice restraint, when we practice holiness, we get immense divine assistance. And then we can move beyond our natural level. So to sum up what we said in today's class, that is, that iskafia, the practice of subduing the sitra achra while it's still young and strong, healthy and kicking, can be practiced not when it comes to just sinful desires and thoughts, but furthermore, even when it comes to permissible things. We can practice restraint in deed. We can practice restraint in speech. We can practice restraint even in thought. And when we do that, we cause not just the glory of Hashem to rise, but the level, the divine level called Kedusha, the level that is totally separate from the world, that rises and causes a huge divine elicitation. And that very same elicitation that we cause in the higher world gets pulled down upon us and gives us great divine assistance so that little by little we actually eradicate the evil from our heart. There's the story of the famous holy sage Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa who was also a very very poor man. So poor in fact that the voice from heaven announced the entire world is sustained on the merit of my son Hanina and Hanina himself eats just one marriage of carobs from Erev Shabbos to Erev Shabbos. So one time he sees lots of his friends and colleagues going up to Jerusalem bringing presents to the Beis Hamikdash and he felt sad because he didn't have money to bring a present. 
So he started wandering towards the outskirts of the city and he came across a huge stone and he thought this stone, if it's chiseled, will be beautiful and I will bring it as a gift. So that's what he did. He must have been very artistic. He sat there all day and he chiseled a beautiful stone. But of course it was too heavy for him to carry. He needed five men to carry it and lift it to Jerusalem. Five porters walked by and he says, can you carry the stone to Jerusalem? They said, 100 gold pieces. And he says, I don't have 100 gold pieces. And they're like, see ya. And they keep walking. Five other people come and he says, can you carry the stone with me for me to Jerusalem? They said, we'll take five slutim. What do you know? That's all he has, five slutim. And he says, okay. And they say, but on the condition that you put your finger and hand to the rock. You have to help us. He says, okay. He puts his hand to the rock, and before you know it, miraculously, they're transported to Jerusalem. He puts the stone down. He wants to pay the men, but they've disappeared. So he goes to the sages, and he says to them, look, I want to pay these men. I owe them money, but I can't. And they said, no, you know what? It looks like Hashem sent angels to help you carry the stone. So he took the money that he intended to pay them, and he used it to pay sages to help them in their Torah studies. My mother used to tell us this story a lot when we were kids, and she used to say, you know what? All Hashem asks of you is put your finger on the rock. You say, I can't eradicate my evil. You can't eradicate your evil, but you need to try. And if you just put your finger on the rock before you know it, you're transported to Jerusalem. You have to make that small effort down here and your little, little effort down here is rewarded hugely from above. The little bit that we do down here causes a huge divine repercussion. And that divine elicitation comes pouring down upon us to assist us greatly in our work so that little by little we actually do away with our dark side. So I'm going to wrap up the chapter in its entirety because we finished it today. And that is the chapter began with that there's another kind of sadness stemming from spiritual concerns and that sadness stemming from the fact that we have to struggle with sinful desires and thoughts. And the altar said, that's not a reason to be sad. That's a reason to be happy because you can fulfill the divine injunction. Do not stray after your heart and after your eyes. And this is only something that something that somebody who has a dark side can accomplish. And furthermore, if you're feeling sad that you have to struggle with your dark side, it's not noble that you feel sad about it. This is coming from the evil inclination. This is coming because you don't recognize your place. This is arrogance. You feel like you're in the league of a tzaddik. Only a tzaddik has the ability to eradicate his evil. So don't be sad about it. And every single time that you resist your dark side, you are causing the, divi- the divine repercussion above. That the sitra achara above is subdued, while yet in its full strength, Hashem is bringing it down. There's two kinds of delicacies you can bring to Hashem. One is the sweet delicacy. That's the service of the tzaddik. The service of ishapcha, transformation. But then there's another type of delicacy. That's when you can take something that's unpleasant or sour and prepare it. That kind of delicacy is a delicacy that surpasses the delicacy of the sweet delicacy. It's a delicacy that revives the soul. And this is something that only somebody who has a dark side can do. Now, this service of iskafia can be practiced not just when it comes to forbidden things, but even when it comes to permissible things. If you practice restraint just for a moment when it comes to eating, when it comes to speaking, when it comes to thinking, 
then you cause not just the glory of Hashem to rise and shine in the higher worlds, but the holiness of Hashem. Because you practice holiness down here, you cause that divine level that is totally removed from the worlds to be revealed in the worlds. And what do you know that's pulled down upon you to greatly assist you in your work that little by little you get divine assistance to eradicate the evil from your heart. So that's the end of today's chapter. I'm opening now for question and discussion.